Back in March, I noted that this year's celebration of St. Patrick's Day would be the strangest in my lifetime, given that the coronavirus had just recently locked down our country. And in April, I noted that this year's celebration of Holy Week and Easter would be the strangest in my lifetime, given that the coronavirus continued to keep us apart. In May, I noted that this year's celebration of Mother's Day and Memorial Day would be the strangest in my lifetime because the coronavirus was keeping us apart. In June, I noted that this year's celebration of Father's Day would be the strangest in my lifetime given that the coronavirus continued to keep us apart. And here we are in July, marking the strangest celebration of Independence Day in my lifetime given the coronavirus. And it's a strange Independence Weekend Independence Day weekend for other reasons. The racial tensions, of course, and the necessary conversations around that to be sure. But it feels like these days that everything is up for grabs. You know, health care, politics, organized religion, higher education, economics, the very concept, the guts of our national cohesion. It all feels so very shaky. Who are we? That's a question being asked. Who do we want to become? What kind of future are we building? What parts of our past do we wish to emphasize and honor? And what parts should we remove? That's what so much of the destruction of statues seems to be about these days. It's not about erasing history. No one can erase history. It's about the parts of our history that are worth celebrating. We want to celebrate what is good and noble and I'd like to celebrate a part of that history today and use that history for its intended purpose. As Paul said, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, written as an example to us. And this example comes from one of our founding fathers that you will never have to worry about his statue getting torn down in Washington, D.C. He doesn't have a statue in Washington, D.C., There's a small one of him inside the U.S. Capitol, but he has no effigy like Lincoln or Jefferson or Washington, though you can be certain, I think, that without this man, those others that I just mentioned would not have followed. This statue, I think Cindy has a picture of it. His name is Roger Williams. And the only place that you will find the statue of him is in the capital city of the colony that he founded in 1636. 140 years before the American Revolution. And that colony is Rhode Island, the smallest state in our union. But even there, you really won't find his grave. You will find only this. It's the root of an apple tree. But if you look close enough, you see the shoulders growing down where the body once was, forming two legs, and then the roots even turn upward where William's feet had been. You see, nearly 200 years passed before someone decided to dig up old Roger and give him a proper burial somewhere because he had just been buried in his front yard. And this is what they found. This root had overtaken the coffin. So now there is this statue of Roger in a park in Providence. And beneath that statue, you will find a, a few teeth and a couple bones that supposedly belong to him. And in the Rhode Island Historical Society, there is this tree root, this apple root that that devoured Roger Williams, and they love it up there. It's a thing. I don't know if uh, our friends, the McTurks, who live up in New England and are snowbirds and come down here regularly can comment on that, but they love Roger Williams' apple tree root that ate him. It's symbolic, of course. The man is gone, but he lives on. His body, his existence, was given over to grow 
not just a tree, but a concept. Roger Williams was our first true founding father of liberty, liberty of conscience, liberty of the soul, and liberty of religion. And without Roger Williams, our country would be a very different place today. The Puritans came here in 1630, led by a man named John Winthrop. And they came here to gain religious freedom. But before they put one foot on New England soil, they had decided that it would be religious freedom for them but not necessarily for everybody else. They were the only ones capable of doing it right, you see, because that's who Puritans are. And so on the boat that brought these Puritans to the New World, Winthrop preached a sermon, and in part he said this, We will establish the proper fusion of religion and government. The Lord will be our God, And he shall make us a praise and a glory, for we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. And that phrase, city on a hill, is taken directly, of course, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 14, 15, 16, You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And Winthrop interpreted that verse to mean that the Massachusetts colony would be the shining light for the world, for everyone to see its goodness and its righteousness. And most every American politician at the national level ever since has used those words the same way. But Winthrop's words and the words of so many politicians are misappropriated. Jesus wasn't talking about Massachusetts. Jesus wasn't talking about America. He was talking about the kingdom of God. And it's here that we arrive at a massive Gordian knot, this relationship between faith and nation, this separation, we call it, between church and state. And I am for it. I will always be for it. Why? Because of our history. When the church is fused with power, when the church becomes a nationalistic tool, we always, always end up hurting people. We go marching off on holy crusades. We start imposing puritanical policies. We show up with our swords in our hands, ready to exterminate those who don't believe the way that we do. We start making hellacious applications of the scriptures to justify our meanness. The church has never succeeded, never in all of history, to straighten out a government. It has only succeeded in being corrupted by power. Because power corrupts, that's what the union of church and state does and it only feels good if it is your church that is in power. Consider this. For the first time in four centuries, the Protestant majority in America is no longer a majority. In a few more decades, there won't be even a majority of Christians. 
In another century, the phrase white, middle-class, American, Protestant will be an anomaly. Christianity will become much more Hispanic, much more African, and this principle of separation of church and state is there to protect your conscience. It's there to protect all faiths because it won't always be your church that is in charge. Roger Williams was the first one in North America to realize this. He knew there had to be a different way. So he comes to Boston. He's 27 years old with his wife, Mary, and Winthrop sends him down to this little village in Salem to preach. Yes, that same Salem. And he becomes the pastor of this Puritan church there. And it didn't take him long to get into trouble. Well, what was Williams preaching that was so controversial that the state had no right to enforce religion? He believed in this odd idea that people should follow their consciences in matters of faith without outside interference. And that was anathema for the day. Damnation on those who would say such a thing. Because Williams lived during a time where they were still burning heretics at the stake. His own church had these complex rules and regulations that everyone in the colony was expected to follow. Let me give you a a comical example from the writings of Roger Williams. When he first arrived in Boston, the pastor of the Boston church had recently announced that children born on Sunday could not receive the sacrament of baptism. Why? Because this pastor said that the mother of those children since she was in labor on Sunday, was working on the Lord's day. And thus, those children could not be baptized. And then he went on to say, and this is the funny part, he believed that children were born on the same day that they were conceived. So if the children were born on Sunday, there was some other work going on on Sunday that should not have been going on as well. And that's why these children did not receive baptism. And it goes on and on like this. If you failed to show up at church on Sunday, the police would show up at your house on Monday. The police, because you weren't at church. If you didn't tithe enough, the governor would increase your taxes. The minister got his paycheck from City Hall, and the collection on Sunday went to the mayor's office. If you're running for office, you had to have the endorsement of the church, or you could not be elected. When it came to voting, only those who were members of the church were allowed to vote. And they were such a closed society that if you had guests come into your home, they could only stay a few days. If they didn't pack up their stuff and move along, then maybe them and you both would be put in stocks and chains, put in prison. The Platform of Church Discipline, a book written during Roger Williams' time in New England, sums up the Puritan view of church and state like this. It is the duty of the government to take care of matters of religion. The goal of the governor's office is to punish and repress idolatry, blasphemy, and heresy. Should any congregation dare to walk in their own way, the governor must put forth his coercive power to correct such rebels and traitors. And we wonder why American religion can be such a disaster. This is how religion in America began. And Roger Williams stood in his Massachusetts pulpit and he said this, 
To this I will not yield. People cannot be coerced or forced into faith. To enforce religious uniformity is to deny the very principles of Christianity. Forcing a person to be converted to a particular faith is nothing less than the rape of a person's soul. God does not need the sword of steel to assist the sword of the Spirit in affairs of the conscience. For a religion that must be upheld by violence is a religion that cannot possibly be true. Those are powerful words hundreds of years ago. So in 1635, they were not just powerful, they were criminal. 1635, Roger was condemned as a heretic. He was banished, and he would have been executed, but he escaped in the middle of the night to the wilderness. And in the New England wilderness, the harsh months of winter, he was taken in by the native tribes there and taught how to survive. And then he eventually purchased from the Narragansett tribe the land that would become the state of Rhode Island, saying this, one of my favorite Roger Williams quotes, I feel safer among the Christian savages than I do among the savage Christians. I feel safer among the Christian savages than I do among the savage Christians. And there in Rhode Island, Williams took in every person of conscience, Jews, Quakers, Baptists, Catholics, atheists, they all came, and even though he did not agree with the beliefs of most of these people, Williams welcomed them because his primary belief was that people had the right, the inalienable right, he was the first person to use that phrase, to choose and express their own faith or no faith at all. And here are his words again, a wall of separation must exist between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. The powers around us are a wilderness. It's wild and woolly out there. And Roger's concept was that communities of faith could be a garden, a cultivated, beautiful, welcoming place. And he believed that if these two things got together, the garden would not bloom and overtake the wilderness. No, the wilderness and the weeds and and the wildness would overtake the garden. And it was important to keep them apart because power always corrupts the simple message and way of Jesus. Always. And he had this radical concept for the day of protecting the church from itself. As Tony Campolo has said for years, mixing church and state is a lot like mixing ice cream and horse manure. It's okay for the horse manure, but it really messes up the ice cream. And never in the history of Christianity has a fusion of state power and religious faith ever worked out well for the church. Because the church always gets used or the church becomes the user and the abuser. And that's what Roger Williams was warning the colonies about. It's why I've chosen this text today from Isaiah. The wilderness won't always do what these verses say to do, but it is the garden's very reason for existence. It's what we do. Here are those verses. I think we have a slide. Prophet Isaiah. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. 
Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from relatives who need your help. That's a little hard right there, possibly. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. There's the city on a hill. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry, restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Those words may sound familiar, even if you haven't read the prophet Isaiah, because they sound like Jesus. They sound like Jesus speaking about the least of these in the Gospel of Matthew, looking out for the naked, the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned. They sound like Jesus' first sermon when He quoted the book of Isaiah saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free. It sounds like the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, those who are hungry for justice, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. In the wilderness, there is destruction and violence. The wilderness is appetite-driven and power-hungry. The wilderness rewards only those who step on others to get to the top. The wilderness is built on dishonesty and arrogance and rage and vengeance and getting ahead at someone else's expense. The wilderness is about discord, the vines of hate running wild. But in the garden, there is generosity, there is hope. In the garden, we dwell on what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and praiseworthy. In the garden, we live by humility and meekness and mercy and justice, liberating grace and peacemaking. We love our enemies, or at least we try, and we endeavor to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. We try to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. You can plant that kind of community, that garden in the wilderness, and it might be small, and it might not get a lot of attention, but it will be beautiful and it will be healing to those who find it. It will be a place of solace, equality, liberation, and all the good that we desire in our lives. But don't think for a minute that we can bring the wilderness inside the garden thinking that we will tame it, fix it, or use it. The power of the world will always distort and corrupt the mission, and the way of Jesus because the power of the world is diametrically opposed to the mission and the way of Jesus. So Roger Williams would say to us, plant that garden, but don't let the wilderness intrude it. Learn to live in this world, to engage this world, but don't play by the world's rules. Play by the rules of Jesus. It's not the church's place to bless everything that our country does. It's the church's place to confront the wild and destructive behaviors of our country with the healing, restoring words and actions of Jesus. It's not the church's place to act as a chaplain and comforter for the government. It's the church's place to be prophetic and to make the nation uncomfortable when it acts in ways that are unjust. It's not the church's place to choose a political party. 
is the church's place to take the side of the least of these, to do what we have read in this text today. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten burdens. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. It's the church's place to remind a society to share its food with the hungry, give shelter to the homeless, give clothes to those who need them, help those in trouble, because it is the church's place to be that well-watered garden in the midst of a wild and ferocious wilderness. That's what Roger Williams envisioned. Those are the roots of his life, apple tree or not. And I believe those roots can still bear fruit today. They must. For what is needed more than ever is a garden where people, no matter who they are, can enter and in good conscience work out their understandings, work out their beliefs, sit at the feet of Jesus, and learn to live radically different lives from the typical examples that are followed. That is the city on a hill. That is the light that our country needs. Not because we are Americans, but because we are followers of Jesus. Not because our primary loyalty and love is to a country, but because our primary loyalty and love is for Christ, who must always reign first in our hearts.